thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. Morning, Reddy. Nice to talk to you again. Now, here's a story that I find very, very fascinating. The world's most famous famous frozen corpse. What's going on there? (laughs) Well, people may remember in the early 90s, in fact, it was 1991, a couple of walkers high up in the Alps at about 3,200 metres stumbled upon a body sticking out of a glacier. And they thought that this was a case for the local police because it was, say, a missing mountaineer or something. The police turned up and said, this is definitely one for the cold case squad. Uh, In fact, it wasn't a missing mountaineer. It was a 5,300-year-old mummified person who had obviously gone missing high up in the Alps in 3000 BC or so. And what turned out was the most incredible detective story because it turned out this person had been shot. And he'd been shot with an arrow because the arrowhead was still in his shoulder. And he'd been rolled over with his left arm underneath him. Someone Mm -hmm. had pulled the arrow out of his back and left the arrowhead still in his shoulder. And then he'd promptly died and been covered in snow and remained frozen ever since, which means he's been kept in the freezer in perfect condition. And Ertzi, as he's now known or nicknamed after the area in which he was discovered in the Tyrolean Alps, has borne enormous archaeological fruit because apart from being a perfect specimen which has been almost perfectly preserved with all his clothing intact. He also has with him all his possessions. So he had bags containing medicinal Mm -hmm. things, mushrooms and so on. He had a tinderbox, a flint knife. He had a copper hand axe. He had a bow and arrow. But he also, of course, came equipped with his DNA. And in there lies the secrets of who he was, what he would have looked like, what sorts of diseases he may have suffered from, and where he came from geographically, who he's related to. Does he have any relatives still alive today? The problem is that DNA sequencing technology wasn't adequately powerful when Ertzi was found because scientists were still struggling to sequence the human genome from intact, good quality DNA. So they haven't actually done the human genome on on Ertzi yet until now. Mm -hmm. And this week a paper has been published in the journal Nature Communications in which uh, a large contingent of scientists led by Andreas Keller at Saarland University have actually published his complete genome now. Using modern genetic techniques they've done more than a billion read-throughs of his genetic material Mm. and where his DNA is fragmented into lots of little bits you can, if you read them many many times, you can look for how each of the individual bits overlap with each other and then work out how they must assemble to make the giant genomic picture. This they've done, and so they're now beginning to piece back together what uh, genetic characteristics he would have had. And some of the early things that have come out are quite interesting. They know he was brown-eyed, for example. He was mm-hmm. blood group O. 
the common blood group, he also uh, had lactose intolerance. Ah, and this is interesting because, well, you were going to say, go ahead. No, I'm just saying that I'm just fascinated that, uh, you know, the investigation can even find such intricate details about a person. Well, there's a gene which is called MCM6, and this encodes the enzyme lactase in people. And until agriculture became well-established, and that was about five to 10,000 years ago, people did not have animal husbandry, therefore they weren't using milk as a staple dietary source, and therefore there wasn't much selective pressure to have this gene which breaks down the, the main sugar, lactose, in milk. So as a result, most of the people we see then um, tended not to have that enzyme, and he was one of them. Uh, he also had a tendency towards high blood cholesterol, mm. and in fact the gene he's carrying gives him a 40% increased risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. Um, this actually fits with the scan findings because they've CT'd his body and his aorta, the main blood vessel running down the centre of the body, has got some areas of calcification. These are build-ups of calcium deposits in the wall of the artery, which is usually a herald of underlying arterial disease. So the, the investigation is really just beginning, but already it's bearing genomic fruit. And the other interesting thing that they found is that the closest genetic match to him, because they compared him with people from the Middle East, with genomes from Africa, and also genomes mm -hmm. from other bits of Europe, his closest genetic match is to Europe. So he was clearly a born and bred European. And the populations that have the closest genetic resemblance to him today are people in Sardinia and Corsica. So for some reason people from the mainland in Europe uh, which are genetically related to him have left mainland Europe, they're now on these islands off of, <laughs> off of Italy. But mm. I guess there's a, a bigger story that will emerge there as more analysis is done. Fascinating. Alright, let's go straight to the lines. Hilton, you're joining us from Kempton Park. Good morning. Morning, ready. Morning, Chris. Mm. Um, Hello, Hilton. With St. Patrick's Day coming up, um, with regards to Guinness beer, when you pour the beer into a glass, it, it looks like the bubbles, instead of like a normal beer, they travel from the bottom going up to the top, which is obviously the CO2 going up, I think. The bubbles look like they're going down for possibly, what, 30 minutes, probably 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And I was just wondering what caused that, as well as how do they pressurize that little plastic ball that they put into the tin to to create the the gas in the in the tin. It's just something that's <laughs> always fascinated me. Okay. okay, Hilton. Um let's look at the bubble question first. So the Guinness already has the bubbles dissolved in the drink. So in the same way that Coca-Cola or Pepsi and all these other brands are fizzy, they're fizzy because the ca the carbon dioxide, which is the bubbles, is already dissolved in the liquid. And the liquid is under pressure which keeps the gas dissolved. As soon as you open the tin, then the liquid can release the pressure and the bubbles can come out of solution and they fizz out wherever there's a convenient point for the bubble to form. That's called a nucleation site. And the little widget in the tin, which gives you that nice creamy head on the beer, mm. is positioned such that it acts as a nucleation site for the formation of those bubbles at an ideal rate and in an ideal position in the pouring process to give you a nice head of creamy uh, beer. Why do the bubbles appear to have that strange going downwards motion? A mathematician called Keith Moffat in Cambridge looked at this question about 10 or 15 years ago because he was also intrigued and clearly a Guinness drinker. Mm -hmm. And the answer is that it's something of an illusion. It's a bit of a trick because what happens is that the vast majority of the bubbles are rising in the drink. They're rising actually mostly in the centre of the drink. And this c creates a movement of uh, fluid 
upwards and sort of on a net mass movement up through the middle of the drink and the water going upwards with the bubbles because as the bubbles go along they drag water with them this means there's a net movement of water upwards towards the center of the glass when the bubbles get to the top the water then has to get back again somehow well it can't get back down the middle because there's other bubbles coming up from below pushing it out of the way so the water flows up to the top of the glass mm. from the center out towards the sides and then falls back down to the bottom again down the sides and creates this circuit inside the glass and when it goes back down the sides of the glass because there are fewer bubbles rising there and they're rising more slowly it's easier for the water to push them downwards in that place so they appear to be falling if you were to look in the middle of the glass you'd see most of the bubbles coming upwards all right very interesting thank you very much hilton john in muley point yes good morning chris um the good news is it possible all things are equal to live purely on pores. In other words, all your pores will have your nutrients and your vitamins and your everything that you need to sustain yourself. Is, is it necessary to actually eat food? Hi, John. Well, I guess the answer is no. It's not necessary to only eat food because there are some individuals who cannot eat food because they've had some kind of tummy problem. Usually these are individuals who have had to have parts of their intestine, if not all of their intestine, removed or their intestine just doesn't work properly. Mm -hmm. And these individuals can have what's called total parenteral nutrition, TPN. And this is where doctors will insert a pipe or a tube into a main blood vessel. And you feed the person by squirting in food in the form of all of the micronutrients in a form that will easily dissolve in the bloodstream. And the person then feeds themselves by plugging themselves into a machine which pumps in this material at a slow rate during the day, at various points in the day, and then their calories go straight into their blood so you don't have to absorb them and break them down through the wall of the gut or process them in the liver, and they then get delivered to all the tissues. So food isn't absolutely necessary, and we do keep people alive in that way, but it's not a very pleasant existence. People feel quite unfulfilled and find it a bit depressing because there is an enormous psychological boost and a, a feel-good factor that goes with actually physically eating things. So people do get a bit miserable when they're doing that, and also it's not ideal for your blood vessels, and, and if you do it for a very long time, you can get some vascular problems and you can also have problems um, with the liver as well because the liver's getting all these calories mm. in a way that it, it doesn't ex expect to get them so I think it's not a long term option but it's not an impossible option if you were to stick with your own gut could that work if you were to grind food up into its component parts the answer is yes definitely because that's effectively what astronauts do um, when you send people into space, you give them low-residue diet in the form of very compact food, which uh, contains all of the right things in the right um, composition and the right mm -hmm. proportions to each other. And so this so-called elemental diet is also very compact and is effectively food reduced to a pill and equally, I think, unpleasant in the long term. Yeah. Most astronauts say that they, they kill for, for a decent bit of food when they get back to Earth. Sure, I can't imagine living like that. But anyway, we have an SMS here. It says, I handled a dead bee. I made sure it was dead. I picked it up to dispose of it and it stung me. How is that? Why do dead bees sting? Yes, it's certainly true that dead bees and dead wasps and a number of insects can still deploy their sting after they're dead. Um, one of the reasons is that the sting can be sticking out of the tail of the animal, and in a bee, unlike a wasp which has a smooth sting, the bee sting is barbed. So once it goes into the skin, it hooks in and stays in. And when you then try to dislodge it, the venom gland is attached to the base of the sting, which is effectively a hollow barb, and applying pressure to the back of the bee to get the sting away, then actually deploys the 
venom down the sting and into you. So you have to be very careful how you scrape the sting out sideways away because if you try and pull it out, you'll actually push it in further. Uh, also, in some insects, when you um, apply pressure to them, then the sting is almost like it, it's almost spring-loaded and it can fire out and get into your skin that way. So you have to be very careful with stinging insects because even though they're dead, then they, they still nonetheless may have their sting under tension inside them and it can come flying out and get you. Be careful then. Leave dead bees alone. Let's go to Prince in Auckland Park. Hi. Hello, good morning. Ray. Good morning. Yeah, before I just ask my question, I, I don't know if you saw my tweet this morning. I just said, uh, I like the way you start the program when you go like, good morning, good morning, hello, Prince. hello, everybody. Okay, <laughs> Prince, thank you. What's your okay. question to Chris? Um, I just wanted to ask, what does science stand on voodoo, like magic or spiritual powers? Scientific know, explanation science, for yes. voodoo. Okay. Yes, do, do science actually believe that or what, what's the position on science about that? Okay, Chris? Well, the, the science... Uh well, the, the, the stance of a scientist on anything is show me the evidence. Um, science is all about making a hypothesis, and that means asking a question, and then coming up with an experiment to test that question, and then asking what was the outcome? Is there any evidence did things change that would support my hypothesis or reject my hypothesis? So science isn't so much about answers, it's about questions. Yes, people have looked at, at aspects of voodoo, they've looked at things like, and also aspects of things like near-death experiences and ghosts and all that kind of thing. And at the moment, I don't think there's any clear scientific evidence that any of this stuff works. And so that's why scientists are sceptical. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not meaningful to individuals. It also doesn't mean that it doesn't affect individuals, because if people believe in something, then it has a very powerful placebo effect for them. And placebo is Latin for I will please. And when you take any tablet or medicine or exercise even, a very high proportion of the benefit you get from doing that is definitely down to the placebo effect. It makes you feel good because you feel you're doing something positive or negative, and as a result, you derive a small amount of pleasure and a psychological boost from doing that. And it's good evidence, actually, that people who believe in God live longer. And they've done many, many trials in mm. many, many places, and people who are religious live longer. At the same time, people who uh, play in a choir, uh, in an orchestra or sing in a choir also live longer. It's probably all to do with social networks and the fact that if you are participating in group activities activities and, and you have strong psychological beliefs in things, then you're more likely to share problems with other people. You're more likely to have people you can ask for help when you're in trouble. And it's those connections that actually endow you with better health and greater longevity rather than anything magical. So, uh, sorry, sorry if that bursts your bubble <laughs> a little bit, Prince. Um, but if, you, if you've got some evidence it works, then please bring it to the party. Derek in Tableview, hi. Good morning, Reddy. Good, Good morning, morning Chris. Uh, talking about burst your bubble, I would like to know why does a balloon go for such a bang when you prick it with a needle? I'll listen on the radio. Thank you very much. Hi, Derek. Well, the reason for this is that the balloon is under tension. So the rubber which forms up the wall of the balloon is being stretched in all directions. And when you put the needle into it, then what you're doing is introducing a failure point in the rubber so that the strands of polymer which are conducting the stress or carrying the or, or under, under tension in the wall of the balloon you then focus the force 
around the hole you've made and you end up with areas of stress either side of the hole where extra force is being applied and this breaks the polymer chains there and this applies extra force to the bit next door and the bit next door and so on and so you end up with the a rent in the side of the balloon propagating very very fast uh, in fact so fast it makes a little sonic boom and the balloon goes bang not all the time, because if you take the bits of the balloon where there is a reserve of rubber, and I'm thinking specifically of the bit where you blow the air in, and also opposite that, the opposite end where there's that little sort of titi bit at the opposite end, um, if you stick a needle in there, you can stick the needle in perfectly happily and the balloon will not go bang. And for this, this, the reason for this is the rubber there is not under tension in quite the same way that it is in the body of the balloon, so you don't get that propagating uh, rent in the side of the balloon that makes it go bang all catastrophically like that. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Let's go to who came in first. It was Audrey in Kilani. Paul, won't you hold on for just a little while longer? Audrey, hi. Hi. Uh, can I speak? Yes, Audrey. Uh, Chris, good morning. I spoke to you some time ago about ducks at the zoo lake. You might just yeah, remember. Yeah, I remember. Yes. Um, my 10-year-old granddaughter asked me a question on Saturday and I couldn't answer. I promised to phone and find out. She asked, if a duck has ducklings, how do those ducklings know which duck is their mother? <laughs> um, it's the same amazing thing that when a penguin comes back from fishing in the Antarctic and it walks across the ice, it somehow knows, where's my baby penguin? Where's my partner penguin? And out of thousands, they find each other and they call and they they sort of screech to each other and somehow they must recognize each other and i think the answer is that both ducks and penguins and many birds have very good vision and they also have a process of imprinting and when they're very young when a young bird sees something which it thinks is its mother then it imprints on its memory the appearance to a very high level of detail of that particular thing and it then maps that as mother forevermore and it means that when mother is in the vicinity the duck will try to follow and mm. there are actually scientists who've done experiments where they can make ducklings imprint on things like robots so you can have a robot that goes around uh, and, they, and you bring the ducklings near to it and they think that's their mother and then they'll start following it round <laughs> because it imprints on their memory so I think the ducklings basically have very good memory for what mum looks like and, and they form this very powerful memory of her appearance her smell her sound and then they know where she is, so they, they go looking for her and follow her around everywhere. And it's an evolutionary trait because it means that then they're likely to not be led into danger. They'll find their mum and, and she'll protect them. Mm -hmm. That brings me then to another question, uh, Chris. In the same way that we distinguish people uh, by their mannerisms, the way they speak and so on, having explained what you've explained, would the different mother ducks have different uh, mannerisms uh, by which they can be identified? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think ducks have a sort of limited repertoire of behaviours. They go quack, they fly, uh, they eat bread on the surface <laughs> of a lake that people chuck in. That's a lot <laughs> to do in one day. Um, but the thing is, if an ant, which is a question we had last time, if an ant can recognise another ant on the basis of the way it smells, and that's a tiny ant, then something with a much bigger brain in the form of a duck, it's not surprising that they can tell feather patterns and individual scents and sounds and discriminate them from each other, because at the end of the day, they're quite good at doing that because their life depends on it. Let's go to Paul then in Durban. Hi there, Paul. Uh, hello, good morning. Mm. I want to ask Chris, why are planets um, from the Earth, planets are seen as perfectly round in shape? 
I've been wanting to find to find out about this for a long time. Thank you. So why are planets round? Yes. Well, the reason for the roundness of planets, I mean, we know that planets aren't really round because if you look at the surface of the Earth, it goes up and down and has pointy bits in the form of mountains and low bits in the form of valleys. But seen from a very long way away, it does look round. And the reason it looks round is because relative to the size of the Earth, those pointy bits are absolutely vanishingly tiny. I mean, Mount Everest, 29,000 feet, 10,000 metres, 10 kilometres, that actually is a tiny fraction of the entire radius of the Earth. The Earth's radius is 6,000 kilometres. So Mount Everest is this tiny little hair's width, like a tiny whisker sticking out of the surface of the Earth, which is really very huge. So from a very long way away, the planets do look round. The reason they are round is that they form under the influence of gravity. Gravity... Uh, acts through the centre of an object's mass and gravity pulls things together and the way in which all of the mass in an object can get as close to each other as possible is mm -hmm. if you form a round shape. Mm. So things naturally form round shapes in space because they're formed under the influence of gravity and they're maintained under the influence of gravity. If you look at smaller objects like asteroids and comets, they often are an irregular shape because they don't have sufficient gravity to pull them into that round shape. But if they accreted, gained more material and mass, it would slowly build up into a nice round sphere. And it wouldn't be a perfect sphere, obviously, because they might have slight irregularities, but in the grand scheme of things, it would be round. All right, Chris, I've got such nice SMS questions for you. I wish we had an hour. I'll save them for next week and then we can <laughs> chat then. Let's do that. Thanks, Reedy. Bye-bye. Bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.